Hebrews 3, 1 through 6. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who is faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Thank you, Jen, for reading. So can you... Can you imagine with me that you and I are walking on, on a mountainside? We're walking a mountain path together. And we're trying to get home, and it's taking a while. So imagine that it's turned into more, less of a hike or some sort of easy walk. And imagine it's turned into more of a pilgrimage than we expected. It's become harder than we anticipated. It's harder because the environment doesn't feel quite familiar, and so we're taking steps, and the footing doesn't seem that sure. We're putting our feet down. We're trying to figure out what next step, and it seems like every step matters because there's, there's a cliff to the side of us that seems way too close and seems pretty dangerous, very steep. And it makes us feel the weight of that every single step. But imagine that also we have a guide. We have a guide walking with us. And, and the guide knows the way. The guide knows the way because he's already walked the path. He knows where each step we need to make. And the guide is committed to getting us home. And imagine that this guide also is committed to keep us from falling. And this guide also knows our strengths. And maybe even more importantly, this guide knows our weaknesses. And he knows those deeply. So what will it take to get us home well, it's all about the guide. It's all about keeping our eyes fixed on the guide. It's all about staying close to him. It's all about staying close together as, as a group or community that will surround him. And if we're unsure, it's all about reminding ourselves of who that guide is and how that guide has walked the path and how that guide is committed to getting us home. It's all about the guide. And that is the message of Hebrews. The message of Hebrews is this world is going to present thousands of different kind of alternative paths that we're going to be tempted to take in navigating our life a thousand different ways. And 
some which will seem appealing, and there are going to be difficulties and pressures, and there are going to be things that make us wonder, like, should we walk this path, or should we go there? And There's going to be things that seem like shortcuts, because the path ahead of us seems difficult and hard, and they're going to, like, well, maybe I, I don't walk that path. Maybe I, I don't follow the guide immediately, and I kind of forge my own path, and that will be the way the world will work, but in this dangerous world, again, the message, again, for, from Evers is Jesus is your guide. And you can't afford to go it alone. You've got to trust and you've got to rely on the guide. And Jesus is and will be. And the message of our series has been, Jesus is and will be so much better than anything else that you could think of. So much better than any other person, so much better than anything or anyone else that you could go, well, I think I'm going to trust this route. I think I'm going to trust this path. Jesus will be better our passage today actually, though, forms a bridge. So we read six verses at the beginning of Hebrews 3, and it forms a bridge. It, it does form a bridge between, obviously, what has been said and what needs to be said. What has been said and what needs to be said. What has been said in chapters 1 and 2 and what needs to be said in chapters 3, 4, and 5. And it's, it's somewhat of a bridge passage that has a little bit of emphasis in both of those places. It draws conclusions and then helps set the table for what's coming next. So what has been said already? We don't have time to kind of redo a couple messages. We've spent a couple weeks in Hebrews 1 and 2, but just in summary, I'd love for us to think about even how Jesus is positioned, if I could use that word positioned, because that's what Hebrews 1 and 2 tell us. In, in one sense, he's positioned over us or above us. He's positioned that way because he made everything. And he, in his creating everything, is superior. He reigns. He is better. He is over us. He is above us. So Hebrews is positioning him there, but it doesn't just position him there. It also tells us that he's going out in front of us. So he is above us, but he's also out in front of us. He's out in front of us as the word is founder, but other translations are going to say a trailblazer. So he knows the path we need to walk. And he's going to clear that path. He's going to blaze that trail. And that trail is a trail of salvation. And Jesus has blazed that trail by becoming flesh and making atonement for our sin. And so we walk following his steps. So Jesus is above us, Hebrews would tell us. Jesus is out in front of us. And then Hebrews gives this amazing picture, and that is Jesus is alongside us. He is sympathetic to our needs. He understands what it means to be human. He understands what it means to suffer. He understands what it means to taste death, and he walks alongside us in all these arenas of life. He's ready to come and walk alongside you in your temptation and in your suffering. That and so much more has been said. In Hebrews, there, there's more that needs to be said. That Hebrews is going to unpack in chapters 3, 4, and 5. And we'll, Lord willing, get into that in the next couple weeks. But I do want you to realize where this is going is, yes, we are walking in a dangerous world, in a dangerous place. And in particular, there are going to be dangers of we could fall into a place where find ourselves overcome with unbelief. 
we doubt, we, we lack confidence. Life can be so tough and the assaults of hell can be so difficult and circumstances begin to gnaw away at our confidence. So at one point in time, we, we would say we believed and then everything kind of brought that back and, and now we're repeatedly saying, I'm not sure, I'm not sure, I don't know, I don't know, I'm not sure about that, I'm not sure I can trust what this says, I'm not sure I believe the same things and that gnaws away. And Hebrews is going to say, be careful because... There's unbelief as a real danger. Then there's another danger that Hebrews is going to tell us in the rest of chapter 3 and 4 and 5, and that is just straight-up rebellion. Like, God, I know what you say. I just don't want to do it. God, I know you have a will and a path for me to walk, and I don't, I don't, I don't want that. My will be done, not yours. And we can harden our heart and get stubborn. We can kind of let spiritual calluses form that make us not so sensitive when we get convicted of sin. We just begin to kind of dial in of like, I'm going to do my thing. Unbelief and hardness of heart or rebellion. It's spiritual disaster. And so, the bridge kind of between what has been said and what needs to be said actually can come as much as we are in a dangerous path, as much as our spiritual survival is at stake, it actually can come as good news to us, what these verses have to tell us. And I want to tell you why it's good news. So especially even there in verse 1 where the writer of Hebrews writes to Christians who are suffering and maybe even asking, is it worth it to follow Jesus? He says, therefore, in light of this, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling. The good news is first that we can remember, even in this dangerous spot, we can remember who we are. As a matter of fact, not only we can, but we need to remember who we are, which is why he says, therefore, holy brothers who share in a heavenly calling. It's a reminder we can remember, we need to remember who we are. We're a community, we're holy, we're holy. Not because we're all like so much better than everybody else in the world. No, we're holy because God has made us holy. He has set us apart. It may not be the first descriptor I've, I think of my, my life is like I'm, I'm holy, but yet that's what God says. If you are in Christ, you've been made holy, set apart for God in his purposes. He has forgiven us of our sins. He's made us clean, dedicated to God's work in us. I've been made holy. He says, holy brothers, by extension, it, it wasn't specifically just to the men. It's holy brothers and sisters, which reminds us we're also a family. This is who we are. We're holy, and we've been made a family. Made a family not just because we all decided to opt in, but made family because of Jesus. Because Jesus, by the choice and actions of Jesus, we're brought together. And we share something in common. What we share is that heavenly calling. That's what the verse also says at the beginning of verse 1 there. I mean, there's so much in these verses, right? We share. We have, like in some ways, it would be a business term. We're partners in this. We share. But what we share in is this calling that, again, we didn't just all decide to opt in, but we were called by God out of darkness into light. God has called us to bring us to glory, according to Hebrews 2. We have a share in that. A person who has studied the book of Hebrews a whole lot says the wording actually is describing 
And these are the words that he said, an intimate relationship forged in a common spiritual reality. I thought that was well put. Uh, An intimate relationship, that's the church. That's what it's meant to be. An intimate relationship forged in a common spiritual reality. Whatever people sense when they come to a gathering of our church, I would love for that to be front and center is, yes, we are all, we're a holy family of believers forged together because of Jesus. So why would we, why would we weep when others are weeping? Well, because we're joining, we are forged together. Why would we smile and laugh and have joy when others have joy? Because we have been forged together with this common reality that we share in Jesus. Why would we protect? Why would we work to make each other better? Because we share something in common. We've been forged together. Why would we pray for each other? Why would we welcome people into into our gathering? Why would we serve? Why would we love? Why would we sacrifice? Why would we join in when we could just play it safe? Why would we give and give and give? Because of Jesus. Because we have a relationship with him and he's forged us together. And I want to say this, and I, I want you to hear it clearly. You were meant, every single individual was meant to have a personal relationship with Jesus. I believe that. But a personal relationship wasn't ever meant to be isolated. So yes, you are meant to have a personal relationship with God, but it was never meant to be isolated. God intends to bring you, not just have a relationship with you, but bring you into a family of brothers and sisters. God has this design so that you would not just get decimated and wiped out. Because even the strongest Christians I know, and I've seen some really, really strong Christians this week, and it has strengthened my faith, but even the strongest Christians that I know can be made weak in about a millisecond. God lays you low. You don't have any answers. and Pretty much all you have is pain. And in those moments where you are weak, God has designed to show himself strong by bringing a community around you to hold you up, to lift you up, to pray for you, to bear your burdens. I mean, the analogies he gives is we're sheep in a flock, we're bricks in a building, in a temple. We're organs, we're cells in a body. We can remember who we are that has a, kind of keeps our path steady, keeps our footing steady. Because of Jesus, this is who we are. But there's even more good news that actually we feel like, okay, we're in survival mode. We've got to, got to manage this pilgrimage. We can't lose our step. We've got to like stay, stay alert. And this passage is going to point us into another direction. And another piece of good news is that we can refocus on Jesus. And I started off by saying, like, we can focus on Jesus. And I said, no, no, actually, we'll probably need to hear. We need, we can also refocus on Jesus because our focus tends to drift. Our focus, we tend to get distracted. And so we need another reminder. We can focus. We can refocus on Jesus. Where do I get that? Well, it's right there in verse one as well. After saying, this is who we are. Therefore, you know, we're a holy family, holy brothers and sisters who share in heavenly calling. 
then he gives us a command, and the command is consider Jesus. And that word consider may, may land on us a little too lightly, but it's a, it's a strong word. So the same word is used when Jesus tells people, before you get all judgmental, and find like the speck of dust in someone's eye, then you consider, that's the word, same word, you consider the beam that's in your own eye. So what is Jesus saying there? You take a good hard look at your own, like, and, and here, so when we read this, consider Jesus, it would tell us, take a good hard look at Jesus. Focus your attention, refocus your attention on him. Fix your eyes on him. It's an amazing, like that's a command, but this is one of those places where a command's a privilege, right? I mean, the command is not, I mean, the mandate is not, we're not weighed down by such a mandate like, okay, here's what you need to do to survive spiritually. You need to memorize this complicated formula and be able to kind of spit it up at a moment's notice. That's what you got to do to survive. It's not that. It's not that kind of weighed down, here's 17 behaviors that you better master or you're never going anywhere spiritually. It's not that. We're not weighed down by, okay, you better like raise your intellectual horsepower so that you can discern or get this insight, this philosophical insight or breakthrough that only, you know, the people that are really, really sharp are going to, that's not, that's not the path either. So he doesn't say any of that. What he does say is you must, you must keep your eyes on Jesus. This must be a focus of your life. And what he does in that is he just gives us a yoke that is easy and a burden that is light. That's exactly what he does. Fix your eyes on Jesus. And then he goes to, like Hebrews does, it just gives a ton of the titles and the characteristics and the attributes of Jesus says he is an he is the apostle. Do you see that? Fix your eyes on Jesus, who is the apostle and the high priest of our confession, the apostle, which is the one who, it's, it's different to think of Jesus as the apostle. We think of the 12 apostles. It's different to think of Jesus, but it names him here. It's the only place in scripture where it names him as an apostle, an apostle who is sent by God with a message, an authoritative representative of God. And that is Jesus. And the message is, trust in me. The message is, God made a good world that we have messed up. And because of the mess we've made of it, we will, we stand rightly under the judgment of God. We should be punished for the mess we make and the mess we've made. But the apostle Jesus comes and says, but atonement has been made for your sin, for your rebellion." And he rises from the dead and proclaims new life. And all those who turn and trust in him, those who repent, actually find that life. He is the apostle. Focus your attention on what the designated representative from God has to say. Focus your attention on the high priest. Consider Jesus, the high priest of our confession. The high priest, the one who intercedes for us the one who is completely committed to bringing sinners like you and me to God, completely committed to it, offering up his life as a sacrifice. 
So actually, it says the apostle and high priest of our confession. So these are things, not just even kind of a, a mental ascent, but these are things that drive our life. We actually confess them. That, that is part of like how we see baptism. We are confessing that this is my high priest. This is my apostle. This is, this is Jesus sent by God to show us who God is and what God wants. This is Jesus, the high priest, who is bringing us, redeeming us, reconciling us, restoring our relationship to God this high priest, this apostle who's been faithful. So it does lead me to ask the question, I think it's an important one for you to think about. Are you considering Jesus? And by that again, I mean like, is he the focus of your attention? How is that happening for you? I don't ask so that you might feel guilty. I really don't. I ask so that you would survive spiritually. In what ways... Tomorrow and, and a week from now and a month from now, will you intentionally focus and refocus your attention on Jesus? Where will he be the center of your attention? What will help you focus? And if I had to jot down things that help me like recenter and refocus my attention on Jesus. I mean, some of the things that kind of are my starting point is pretty regularly, I have to wake up in the morning and one of my first things that I have to do is open God's word. And whether it's a couple verses or whether it's a chapter, even several chapters, that has a way of focusing my attention going, I got a calendar and I've got an inbox and I've got things I've got to do and things I've got to think about. And yet before any of that, certainly a priority is, Jesus, long after I get through my to-do list, you will be supreme over this all. Where does my attention really need to lie? Well, yeah, I've got appointments and I've got an inbox. Where does my attention need to lie? Something that helps me is reading, you know, books from authors that, again, have just a way of pointing me back to Jesus. Sometimes, even this week, a couple times, I had to do a few things, like in the car as I'm riding to church here, preparing for my day. And so I, I love to listen to all kinds of different podcasts, but sometimes I just got to turn that out and go, no, I don't need to listen to anything other than like, Lord, I, I want to make sure my attention is on you. And then another day, like, I just need, I love music, and I need music that's going to point me, because music does something emotionally. It drives some things in our heart, helpfully drives some things in our heart. And I'm just like, I need to focus my attention on you, and there are songs that lead me into a place of worship and trust and reliance, and it builds that confidence in the high priest that I know cares. At times, it's Pray, I mean, short prayers, long prayers, it's praying with friends, it's talking with friends, it's conversation. I, I, what I'm asking is how many of those intentional things are you doing? And again, I don't ask for guilt or shame. I'm asking, I do think your survival's at stake. If you're not intentionally pursuing these things. Because without these, my heart would grow cold. I would definitely be leaning toward unbelief. God, I, I know you said that. I'm not so sure. Or God, I know you say this, but I want to do what I want. I mean, these things would be really, really live temptations for me. What distracts from like keeping that focus? Well, I mean, there's a real simple answer of what distracts me, and that is life. Life distracts me. Life moves my focus at times away from Jesus. 
and considering him and considering what he did on the cross and who he is and all that scripture tells us, what he wants from me. And sometimes it's life and you can't avoid it and there's just things to do. And I, I get that, but there's also times where, like, do I really need to invite distractions? Do I really need to invite more noise into my life? Do I really need to scroll for what I thought was five minutes and turns into 30 and like literally nothing to show for it? Do I, need, do I, do I really need to binge watch this or that? Again, it's worth evaluating what is going to drive my focus back to Jesus. Things that I have been pursuing, like redirect those. This passage tells us some more. Again, it's a bridge because it's preparing us for, preparing us a lot for a focus on Moses and what he meant to Israel and Jesus and what he means to us. So then Moses comes up and there's kind of this, for those of you who uh, never loved tests, there's this like compare and contrast thing going on. Maybe you remember being asked to compare and contrast these. Moses, there, there are ways in which Jesus compares to Moses and ways in which Jesus is so different from Moses. There's a comparison there. You, you see it even in verses 1 and 2 that just as Jesus is faithful, Moses was also faithful. And when we hear Moses' name, I'm not sure we appreciate quite how deeply, like we're not hearing it quite as a, a, a Jewish community might have heard of. Like Moses was everything. He's the one that brought the law. He's the one that brought people out of Egypt. He's the one led by, by God to lead God's people. He's the one that came down from Mount Sinai with tablets. I mean, the Ten Commandments, all that and then there is this strong, like that, they compare in that they were faithful, but then there's this contrast, the statement, strong statement of superiority. Look at verse 3, it says, Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. And that, again, I don't think that lands on us quite like it would a first century Jewish community. But it makes sense that Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory, just as much glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. Because what we know is the house doesn't build itself, right? For every house is built by someone, the builder of all things is God. And God has built a house of, like, gathering his holy people, gathering of people. This is the house that God is building. Again, some more contrast with Moses and Jesus. It says in verse 5, Now Moses was faithful, and notice the word faithful in all God's house, as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful not in, but over over God's house, and not as a servant, but as a son. Moses was pointing of things to come, and Jesus comes and says, the kingdom of heaven has arrived. It's at hand. And then the end of verse 6 says, we are his house. We are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. We are his house. And I think about that, and I think of all the all the flaws, all the sins, all the struggles, all the challenges that we bring to the table, we bring to each other, and yet we are his house. This is what God is building. The one who built galaxies that we have not yet discovered says My, what I am building is a group of people, a group of redeemed sinners, it gives us motivation. Our life together isn't easy, but it gives us motivation. We live in a world of sin. 
but God is building something. We live in a world of suffering, but God is building something, and he's telling the world, this is who I am. This is what I'm like. Jesus promised he would build his church. There's a note there in verse 6 that says, we are his house if we hold fast. And that word if, a lot of, a lot of Christians struggle with that, and, and it's understandable if we hold on, if we hold fast. For a lot of people, that brings a note of uncertainty if we hold fast, because you look at your own life and your own weakness and your own failings, and you think, I really, I, I don't know how I'm going to hold on. I, I don't know how I'm going to hold fast. And I just want to, I want to reflect on that a moment ago. So if, if we hold fast, if we hold on, this is language that Hebrews uses pretty regularly, and it's meant to be a warning. And, and the, the Lord wouldn't be loving if, like, here we are walking this mountain path with a cliff if he didn't say, be careful. If he didn't warn us of danger. And so our Lord is warning us. There's danger lurking. At the same time, I hear an encouragement because it's almost as if the Lord is telling us, you must hold on. And just like a good coach is saying, like, you will hold on. You can do this. You will do this. And I also hear an extension, an invitation of Jesus. Because it's like not so much about what we can do. Like, yes, we're holding on, but, but it's more the focus isn't on what we're doing and more on, on who we are holding on to. I hear Jesus say, come to me. So I think like, what action do I need to do to be right with God? And Jesus says, here's the action, come to me. Put your faith in me, rely on me, put your confidence in me. And here we Say, okay, what do we need to do? We need to hold on. And the focus really isn't so much on you, whether you're tough enough, devoted enough, good enough, have your act together. The goal really isn't for you to prove anything here. But the goal is to drive you back to the one you're holding on to. I go, what about him? Is your courage and your confidence and your like your confession, remember, it's in him. We're holding on to him, who he is. It isn't about your willpower, whether you have it in abundance or whether you don't have enough. But it's another opportunity, and Hebrews is going to take these opportunities quite frequently to remind you, remember who you're holding on to. Remember how faithful he is. Remember, he's the one who doesn't let you go. Remember, he's the one that pursues you and tracks you down and convicts you and meets you in regrets and meets you in mistakes. So, so much so that any boasting, any hope we have is certainly not in ourselves. That's never where Hebrews is going to take us. But to say, if we have any boasting, if we have any hope, if we have any confidence, it's in him. It's in him. It's in Jesus who gives the hope. You know, sometimes Christians write things that endure for a long period of time, and it, doesn't, it isn't on the same plane as Scripture, but it, a Christian or a group of Christians sometimes articulate things that like it just sticks, and it sticks for a long time. Sometimes it sticks for centuries. So I was thinking about that. It's like a confession of hope, and I wanted to read something that Christians wrote in the 1500s. And they wrote it in the form of like a question and answer, a catechism. It's called the Heidelberg Catechism, and I, I want you to see the words for yourself, and it's a lot to take in. 
But the question that is posed is, what is your only comfort in life and death? Like, this is the hope, right? Where is it? Where does it lie? And I just want to read through these words. You can read them on the screen. What is your only comfort in life and death that I am not my own? But I belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. That is our only comfort in life and death. So where do we just refocus our attention on Jesus? Can I just get to bow your head? Can we just take a moment and do that? In a moment, we're going to be led in a song calling out to Jesus, my Jesus, I love thee. For now, ask the Lord to show you where your attention needs to be refocused. I think that would be a prayer he would love to answer. In just a moment, we'll sing.